Well, I'm glad to be back. And, uh, you know, I'm still not going to give you a percentage of all the books I sell. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, we'll keep trying. Ladies and gentlemen, you know And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Ho, 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 my friends. Uh, this is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with the 6th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. First of all, happy holidays to everybody out there. Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, and happy New Year's. What the hell, we'll throw it in there, even though you're going to be hearing from us before the 31st. It's a Festivus for the rest of us. It is the BOA Audio Holiday Special. Every year I look forward to this episode. It is truly one of my favorite installments of the program each season. Talking about the Holiday Special here with Stanton Friedman. And it really has turned into more than just a celebration of the holidays. It has become really a celebration of the man himself, the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. I hold Stanton Friedman in the highest regards, as anybody who's listened to the program knows. There are so many ufologists out there. There are so many people who have done fantastic work. But Stanton Friedman is one of the very, very few that have transcended the world of UFOs. You could walk down the street of any city or town in the world and just say Roswell, and the people there will know exactly what you're talking about. That really, folks, is the result of the work of Stanton Friedman. He's changed the very fabric of the global culture, and when you stop to think about that, that is a stunning thing to realize, and that's why we celebrate him each year here on the BOA Audio Holiday Special. This year's Festivus is going to be a very entertaining affair because it is jam-packed with stuff. Much like the last two years, we opened up the floor to BOA Audio listeners, and we got a ton of questions. I'll get to those in just a minute. Let me give you a thumbnail overall of what we're going to be discussing here on the 6th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. We'll start by getting Stan to reflect on the recent Exeter UFO Festival, where I had the chance to introduce him for the packed crowd. And then we'll get into some discussion on his new book, Science Was Wrong. Then we'll look at UFO organizations and the Internet. And we'll get him to weigh in on the retirement of Larry King. That's sort of the prelude. That's kind of like the appetizer, if you will. Because then we open up the mailbag and we begin doling out the questions from BOA Audio listeners for the father of modern-day ufology. This year, we're going to pose over 15 diverse queries submitted by listeners, and we've got some questions from former BOA Audio guests Greg Bishop, Jason Offit, and Keith Chester. So that's something a little bit different and a surprise to me. They just joined in alongside all the other folks who submitted questions, and I was really touched that they wanted to take part in this year's proceedings. I'm not going to go over all the topics from the listener questions, but here's sort of a little overview. We're going to hear about the electric universe theory, hypnosis and abductions, including the recent Emma Woods case, 
how a modern-day Roswell might go down. We'll get Stan's opinion on the face on Mars, UFOs in the media, the ETs are from Inner Earth Theory, and the ETH, as well as how he would have handled having J. Allen Hynek's job at Project Blue Book. And that's just a handful of the questions we're going to be getting to. This really is a veritable Stanton Friedman press conference here from the BOA Audio listeners. They just got a ton of stuff in, including really some truly personal and existential areas of discussion that I think you're going to find particularly enlightening, because I sure did. Our tagline for this one had been, it's the holiday special you do not want to miss, but chances are you're not going to miss it because you're listening to me right now. So just kick back, throw on the Yule Log, because it's time for our annual fireside chat with the iconic Stanton Friedman. There's not much more to say beyond that, so happy holidays, my friends. Let me give you the brief overview of Stanton Friedman's bio. He, of course, received his B.S. and M.S. degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956, then spent the next 14 years working as a nuclear physicist for some serious powerhouse companies on advanced, classified, and eventually canceled projects like nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. Then, of course, he delved into the world of ufology, and over the course of his remarkable career, as a ufologist, he has provided written testimony for congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN. He's been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, and the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish star map work. He really has become the face of ufology over the last 30 years. He's the author of Top Secret Magic, Crash at Corona, and his magnum opus, Flying Saucers and Science, as well as the co-author of Captured, and his latest book, also co-authored with Kathleen Martin, titled Science Was Wrong. His website is www.stantonfriedman.com. Easy stuff there, folks. Stantonfriedman.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and start unwrapping. This interview was recorded on December 12, 2010. Ladies and gentlemen, the 6th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special, featuring Stanton Friedman. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 6th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. You really don't need me to say much more than that because, of course, you know who the guest is. He's been on the program here every year on the final episode before Christmas. He is beyond a legend in the world of ufology. He's a true icon the author of Crash at Corona, Top Secret Magic, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, which he co-authored with Kathleen Martin, his magnum opus, Flying Saucers and Science, and his latest book, also co-authored with Kathleen Martin, Science Was Wrong. He is the legendary Stanton Friedman, and it is, you know, always a thrill for me to talk to him. He was the very first interview that I ever did. We like to give Jim Mars credit for planting the seed for my interest in the esoteric, but when it comes to Stan Friedman, he really opened the door for me to continue onward here and develop this into a radio show, and without him, you know, if he had told me to get the hell out of here back at the X conference in 2004, there would be no but all of America audio, so we owe a huge debt to him, and that's why we celebrate him here every year on the BOA Audio Holidays Special. Welcome back to the program, Stan, and happy holidays. 
Well, I'm glad to be back. And, uh, you know, I'm still not going to give you a percentage of all the books I sell. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll keep trying every year, I guess. <laughs> well, you can always lay claim to the fact that I think you're the only person in all of ufology that has his own holiday special. So, you know, that, you got that going <laughs> yeah, for you, too. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Hanukkah we're celebrating, right? <laughs> There you go, absolutely, yes. All holidays, all holidays here on the holiday yeah. special. Now, I had the unique pleasure of, of working with you and introducing you at the Exeter event uh, this past September, and I was really sort of blown away by just how beloved you were by the crowd. I mean, I should have known this because of the, all the emails I get and how you know how high I hold you in esteem, but just it was stunning to me how packed the place was and how fervent the crowd was and excited for you. I mean, what does that feel like for you? To just have them in the palm of your hand, like you, you went up there to check your slides, and they wouldn't let you get off the stage. And it was, it was that amazing. I, it was something I've never quite seen before. So, you know, what's well, that like for you? It was great, and you know, it was what was most interesting to me at Exeter. You know, it's not a big town, and I was of course pleased with the size of the crowd. But what surprised me is how many books went out the door. Uh, from the time I got there and set up shop outside with Kathleen, who was there, we ran out of books. And, you know, that rarely happens. And we're talking a small town, you know. Uh, and we had, because I came by car, It's uh, I live up in uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, which is, you know, 400 and some miles from Exeter. And so it's drivable. I don't do it in the winter very often but, <laughs> for obvious reasons, but... So I drove down and I picked up uh, cases of books at my office in Maine, across the border, and I, I was shocked by the sales just went on and on and on. I thought, you know, they, there'd be a few sales beforehand, quite a few after the lecture and so forth. But to me, when people put their money where their mouth is, uh, that, that's something special. And I... so I, I felt very pleased. I wasn't at the Mirigos conference. But this one certainly uh, pleased me. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, I, I did get an enthusiastic crowd a few weeks ago down in Baltimore, but it was smaller, only a couple hundred. And this is a, an international, global something or other group, younger people, and I couldn't believe it. When each of the four speakers was introduced, they stood and clapped and cheered, and when we finished, they stood and clapped and cheered. I've never seen that kind of enthusiasm. <laughs> they must have been programmed, you know. But but Exeter was a very good experience, and, you know, I haven't written much about the Exeter, the incident at Exeter, but, of course, John Fuller, who wrote the book Incident at Exeter, is the one who wrote the first book about the Betty and Barney Hill case. So... Uh, and I'm sure a lot of those people, I know a lot of those people bought Captured, which is, what, from 65 to 2007, that's what, 42 years later, and the interest is still there. That tells you something, you know, for those people to say, oh, nobody cares about flying saucers, or I have to tell you, I'm getting ready to do my column for the uh, MUFON Journal, and I want to do it on Aliens and the media, because we've had this strange experience the last couple of months of seeing a lot of notes about aliens, but not visiting extraterrestrials, you know. Yeah. Arsenic and old aliens, <laughs> arsenic and old life. <laughs> I like that, yeah. Uh, and reading, I, I was looking up 
extremophiles and extraterrestrial life on Google just to see what they say. And the, the one on extraterrestrial life, there's a couple of page introduction and stuff. And they finish with like two sentences saying, uh, there are those people who think some UFOs are alien spacecraft, but uh, the science, that's discounted by the scientific community, which knows that they're uh, uh, mistaken airplanes and uh, astronomical objects. And, you know, it just dismissed it right out of hand. And, you know, I, I looked up, uh, to give people a sense of perspective here, I looked up gold mining, gold ore, mm -hmm. and it used to be that gold ore was worth mining if there was an ounce of gold per ton of ore. Oh, wow. And I looked up uh, an article now, of course, that's when the price of gold was a lot less than it is now, and it said that with some of the special cyanide processes, it's worth mining the stuff if there's a gram of gold per ton of ore. Wow. A gram! So, you know, be generous. Give them 50 grams. We're still talking uh, a very tiny percentage of the ore is gold, but it's worth mining. Now, in the biggest study ever done, 21.5% of the sightings couldn't be explained, and apparently that's not worth mining, <laughs> which I find extraordinary. And, of course, the guy doesn't – none of the references deal with UFOs. There's a whole long list of references at the end of this long article, and, you know <laughs> – who are these idiots who are writing this junk? <laughs> well, you think they're so afraid, and, and that's what has characterized all the coverage. And incidentally, I don't know if you're aware of it, but uh, there's been a strong backlash to that article about arsenic replacing phosphorus in the bacteria out at Mono Lake, you know, which they made a big deal about. Yeah. An article in Science Magazine and Felicia Simon something or other. Uh, made all the television stations and all that stuff. And there have been a couple of backlash articles saying that article should never have been published. The science was wrong, and they didn't mention this, that, and the other thing, and the strong reaction to it. I was a little surprised. But it is interesting that it's okay to talk about that. And something else that got the attention of the media recently was – the discovery of a planet in the Goldilocks zone, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people talking about for sure there's life out there. And you sit back and say, wait a minute. We don't know what the surface of that planet is like. We know roughly the mass and the size. Now, Venus is not very different from Earth, but the circumstances on the surface are certainly very, very different. Exactly. Like yeah. 600 degrees, you know, and... A sulfuric acid, not a nice place for an earthling to visit, I'll tell you that. But we act, <laughs> it, it's the ego that's getting in the way here, you know. We're surprised that there's a form of life that we didn't know about, because we know everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What nonsense. The whole idea of science is to discover what you didn't know before. It's based on a presumption that there is information to be learned. We're not at the ACME. We're not in a position where we can say, well, we've discovered it all. You know, close the patent office. There's nothing more to be discovered kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And the arrogance that goes with that is really something else, uh, which, which I find laughable. It's not, it's not funny laughable, but it's odd. It's weird. It's arrogant. It's egotistical. 
it's really the work of an ignoramus to suggest that how could there be a form of life that we don't know about? Holy cow, where does that come from? Yeah, you, it makes you wonder. It goes back almost to, you know, part of the human condition or something because, you know, there was such steadfast resistance to Copernicus and his ideas. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's yeah. been going on Poor forever. Yeah, old Giordano Bruno, boy, did he take it in the neck. Well, he got burned at the stake. I don't know where he got burned. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, and I was reading uh, I something, I learned something, that the Talmud apparently someplace says that there are 18,000 other worlds out there. I didn't know it said that. I've got to look that one up. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, so, you know, it was only with uh, the idea that the Earth was the center of the universe. That would rule out anything else being out there, boy. And, uh, gee, you know what? That isn't true. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, we know better. Well, that, that sort of, that's a good segue into the new book, Science Was Wrong, as I said, co-written with Kathleen Martin. What's been the reaction from the scientific community to the book, if at all? Because, I mean, they seem like well, the types of people that don't want to be told, you know, that when they're wrong, they just change the, change the goalposts. Yeah, no, nobody, I've had a very good reaction. Both Kathleen and I have done radio shows and uh, have had good reactions. Uh, hosts who saying uh, they hadn't known what to expect when they read the book, but they were very pleasantly surprised. Uh, I haven't had anybody give us a hard time. Uh, I think some people were surprised that only two chapters, one by me and one by her, dealt with flying saucers, UFOs. But there's certainly, you know, there's enough material out there to do several books. Science was wrong. Mm -hmm. And that that is a good segue because that's the whole point here, that when elder statesmen of science who have a number of degrees and high honors but speak out about something about which they know nothing. You can almost be certain that they're wrong, and we have many examples. And the kicker is, you know, it's not just an ego thing, but they stand in the way of progress. Mm -hmm. People may die because they prevent new cures, new methods of medical things. Uh, several of the chapters in the book are about medical situations. And people are shocked a little bit. Uh, Semmelweis Ignaz Semmelweis, one of my favorite people, <laughs> he delivered babies in uh, Austria and Vienna in the 1830s, 40s. And he figured out that the reason 20% of the women came down with childbed fever, invariably fatal, when they were taken care of by the doctors who would go from doing autopsies upstairs to delivering babies, examining women downstairs, he figured out because a friend of his had a needle stick and, whoops, he died of the same thing. He instituted a very difficult regime. you got to wash your hands with good soap and nail brushes and stuff like that and cut the percentage down from 20% to 3%. But the boss of the hospital said, that's not the way we do business here. You know, back then, the, how bloody your apron was is what decided what a good doctor you were. And they forced him out of the hospital. He published good research, had made his case. He did animal research just to back it up. How many women died Yeah, and their babies? Because this strong-minded doctor said, no, not here. We're not going to do that. And you know what? It, there are many examples of that sort of thing, the hemophilia holocaust, which surprised some people, I guess. Uh, doctors who said that continue using the uh, clotting concentrate, factor eight concentrate that you've been using all this time, this is in the early 80s, 
There's no danger from AIDS here. Chance of you're getting uh, AIDS from a blood transfusion. One in a million. Oh, boy. 10,000 American hemophiliacs were made HIV positive by transfusions which were contaminated. Now, it's not surprising because to make this clotting factor, they would pool several thousand units of blood and chemically treat it to get a concentrate, which is great because one little bottle has enough stuff to make up for many units of uh, whole blood or plasma. Mm -hmm. uh, the only trouble is if one unit was contaminated, the whole batch would be contaminated. Yeah. And the Germans had already shown a few years before that that if you heat treated, you'd get rid of the hepatitis virus. But the Americans and Canadians said, uh, hey, that costs too much money. It isn't necessary. Nothing to worry about. So 10,000. Now, fortunately, uh, there were better treatments for AIDS came along. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there, it's not curable, but at least it, you can hold off the inevitable kind of thing. But, you know, 10,000 is a lot of people. And those guys had made an awful lot of money from hemophilia because that clotting factor isn't cheap. So it's just one more example. I, 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 we found out about one guy, a Red Cross guy, who told the people, hey, we have heat-treated stuff. Send back the old stuff. They did. He sent it off to other hospitals. Would you believe that? Oh, my God. Well, these people have already been exposed, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, so when you get into technology... And that's some of the major arguments against flying saucers. You can't get here from there. Uh, you know, there's no possible way. There's no way you can fly in an airplane. Said a great, the greatest astronomer of the, last, of the 19th century, Simon Newcomb, in 1903. Everything shows, as solid as any fact can be, that man will never fly in a vehicle long distances in the year. Two months before the Wright brothers' first flight. But do you know how hard it was to get financial support because of people like him saying things like that? Why would you put your money down a rat hole? Nobody's ever going to be able to fly in an airplane. Oh, boy. Yeah. And one that cost the English a lot, an English inventor, uh, Whittle, in 1930 got a patent for a jet engine. Uh, the English government cared not a whit. <laughs> German got a patent, uh, von Ohain, in 1935. And the Germans built the first jet-engined aircraft. Now, what if the Brits had built jet-powered aircraft and had been able to ha have them during the Battle of Britain? What a difference that would have made. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, so there are consequences is, is the point. And the thing, you know, you wish people would have a big gray basket. People ask me questions, and sometimes I have to say, look, I don't know. I don't have enough data, maybe. Uh, but these guys, it's always negative. No, you can't do this. You can't do that. You won't be able to do that. And we, all of us, have to be alert to this because, you know, it's one thing to talk about childbed fever, uh, hemophilia. These are not so common things. But there are other areas. Well, the, the case that I like that, well, I don't like talking about it because it sickens my stomach, frankly, but the battles against Billy Mitchell about sinking ships from airplanes. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a very successful pilot during World War One, and he came out of it saying, as an officer, saying that the warfare had been changed. Now ships would be able to, I mean, would be able to be sunk by airplanes dropping bombs on them. 
Secretary of the Navy said, I'll stand on any ship. He's going to bomb. You never sink a ship with a bomb dropped from an airplane. <laughs> he got court-martialed and so forth. Well, a, a little piece of paper shows you what happens when you listen to people like that. On November 29th, 1941, the Army-Navy football game. And in the program, there was a picture of a huge battleship, the USS Arizona, and a statement that man has never sunk a battleship from the air. Eight days later came Pearl Harbor, and USS Arizona was sunk, killing over 1,100 men on board. The Japanese didn't know you couldn't sink a ship from an airplane. Yeah, exactly. We, we weren't prepared to defend against that, you see, because it was impossible. So there are consequences, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it seems like history's littered with uh, changes that were the result of ignorance almost. It's, it's yes. stunning. To take you down a different path here, I wanted to, you know, I'm a big fan of the historical aspect of ufology, and I recently yeah. saw that you have spoken at more MUFON symposiums than anyone in history, which is a remarkable feat. Congratulations on that. And uh, I, guess, I, guess, I guess I wanted your opinion on, you know, UFO groups in general. It seems like they're a dying facet of ufology, especially when you look back to, uh, I, I was talking to Rich Dolan about his book, and I, I, I can't recall the case specifically, but he listed about five UFO groups that came down to uh, check out some case in the, in the 1970s. You know, there was NICAP and APRO and KUFOS and MUFON. So, I mean, what, what do you think about this changing face of ufology where the UFO groups are really a thing of the past almost? Well, MUFON's still going, mm -hmm. and uh, the annual symposium I spoke at last year's too, and uh, good attendance, a lot of people buying books, attending the sessions and stuff. There were certainly well over 600 people there. Uh, I think you're right, and I think one of the things is the Internet. Mm -hmm. People don't need to belong to UFO groups. They can go to the Internet and find whatever junk they want. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I admire it as a communications tool, obviously. I don't need to address envelopes, you know, yeah. stuff like that. And I'm a lousy typist. It's very easy to correct and all that stuff. But uh, the question of reliability and checkability, and people put whatever they please on the Internet, and whether it's true or not doesn't matter. And I get people citing sources and somebody's comment from the Internet who didn't provide any evidence at all. And so, but it, it's comforting, you see. You can be in a chat room. You can belong to Internet talk groups. And some of these have loads of postings. That's a lot easier than going to a meeting. It's certainly a lot easier than going out to investigate something. Yeah. You know, just believe what somebody else tells you. So it is a bit of a problem. The funny thing is that there's growing acceptance that there's probably life all over the place out there. In other words, the astro astronomical stuff, finding planets, people don't realize that 60 years ago there aren't any planets out there besides in our solar system. You know, we haven't seen any. Of course, we are looking techniques weren't adequate to the problem at hand at that time. But So that's changed drastically. There's over, I think the last number I saw was 506. And there's going to be a lot more than that because Absolutely, we've yeah. just begun looking. So that's one thing that's changed. 
Also, we're finding not only uh, other planets, but I'll call them solar systems, that is, stars that have more than one planet around them, like ours does. And so it's beginning to look uh, a lot like life all over the place out there. Maybe the Talmud was right. Maybe there's 8,000, 18,000 <laughs> planets. But so the attitude about it, and, you know, when the Pope pipes up, <laughs> And says, you know, there's no reason God couldn't have made others out there. Is he getting ahead of the curve? Does he know something we don't know? You know. So the attitudes have changed drastically, and that's a good thing. There aren't nearly as many people saying, I've run across a couple saying, there's nothing in the Bible. And I try to get them to read Barry Downing's book, The Bible and Flying Saucers, which indicates there's plenty of stuff in the Bible. <laughs> but... Uh, those people are getting fewer and fewer uh, out there, and that's all a healthy thing. In other words, I, I see an enormous difference within my lifespan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seems that way. Yeah, and so that's good. In other words, the young people, also technology, let's face it, maybe they don't know about nuclear rockets, which is what I do, tell them about it. And they're shocked when I point out that we have nuclear aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers that can operate for 18 years without refueling. Now think about that for a minute. Uh, that's an awful lot of gas not used, isn't it? <laughs> for yeah, for sure. Whatever they used to use. Uh, so uh, the, the world has come along, and lasers. You know, the laser is 50 years old this year. Oh wow. Uh, and it can do an incredible amount of stuff. Uh, you can send signals that could be seen from another star system using a laser. You can shoot down an airplane using a laser. You can drill <laughs> you can drill holes in baby bottle nipples using a laser and attach retinas and all the checkout counters. Where would supermarkets be without the uh, barcodes, which are all laser red? You know, so. It's taken over our life without even thinking about it. We take it for granted. CD players, got to have a laser in there, you know. So they do illustrate something. Now, one of Friedman's mantras, a technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You're going to change how you do things. In other words, that laser is not just a better light bulb. Entirely different physics, believe me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, things, the younger people are growing up with an, an entirely different environment. When I look at some of them with their little phones, which can do all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, I just shake my head. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if anybody said, told me that when I was their age, I'd have laughed my head off. Well, how do you do that, you know? Oh, yeah, back then, computers were like the size of a room or something like that, so... Uh Hey, when I worked at General Electric, you'd fill out input data sheets. This is back in the 50s. Uh, a girl would key punch them on cards. Another girl would take a box of cards and a huge reel of tape, maybe over a foot in diameter, and take it up to the special facility at another building where they had loads of air conditioning, and that computer was huge. And we paid like $500 an hour for time on the computer. Uh, and I think they had 64K memories on those things. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but the computer could do in a few minutes what it took somebody 
three months to do by hand, so it was a tremendous improvement. But it's the people that matter. Look, the atom bomb was designed with slide rules, you know. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get to the listener questions in a minute. The last uh, sort of topic I wanted to touch on here with you this year was uh, – we're losing a, a, a big player, I guess you could say, a, a friend of ufology in a way, Larry King, who's who's going off the air at the end of this, yeah. this coming week. So I, I guess reflect a little bit of, on your experience, you know, being on his show and, and working with him and, and, you know, being interviewed by him and sort of like the, the contributions, if you will, to ufology that, you know, he gave us a chance when a lot of people weren't given, given us a chance. Well, that's so. true. And I've done a show four times. The first one was out in the desert. Oh, I love that. I still remember that one. That was amazing. It was a strange show. <laughs> <laughs> I went to airports after that, and a lot of people recognized me. Uh, but he gave an opportunity to speak out. Now, there were flaws with the show, as everybody knows who's watched it. They had to have a nasty, noisy negativist on Somebody who didn't have to know anything about the subject, but it's policy of the CNN, I guess, that you got to have, like, Bill Nye, the science guy, whose purpose is to deny. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. Well, you know, uh, and I've had people tell me, they say, Stan, look, let him have him on all the time. He makes you look good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will always treasure the moment. When he pointed out a page which had one line blacked out and said, these guys are all saying there's a cover-up. There's no cover-up. That's a privacy issue. It's the guy's address. Fortunately, I had my book, Flying Saucers and Science, sitting out in front of me and scrabbled through it and found a page uh, of the CIA UFO documents that it took me five years to get. And you can read eight words on it, and everything else is blacked out. So I was able to immediately show that to the camera, and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about privacy from one line. Uh, we're talking, and you can, from the NSA, if you want, you can get 160 pages where you can read one sentence and everything else is whited out. Yeah. But uh, I was just lucky I had the book with me because that one picture, you know, uh, speaks a thousand words. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so Larry... Uh, and his programs usually got replayed. Oh yeah, more than once. And so, you know, I'd have people say, "Oh, I saw you on King the other night." I say, well, "Oh, really?" <laughs> and then when he describes, and I know it was a rerun of a show I'd been on before. But I'll tell you, one way to measure it uh, is that uh, if you looked at my numbers on Amazon.com, mm -hmm. you know, they give you sales relative sales numbers uh, for your books. And boy, in 24 hours, I'd come up in the top few in UFOs and life in outer space. They got several categories within 24 hours after the show. So again, that means somebody's putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, clearly, it, it had an impact that way. And now I'll admit, I had a guy call me and say, I almost didn't call you. I figure you're only in it for the money. <laughs> I said, why do you say that? Well, I see on all those television shows. I said, well, I don't get paid for those. What do you mean you don't get paid? I don't get paid. Well, how about Larry King? He doesn't pay. He pays airfare in a hotel. He doesn't even pay for meals. Well, you, you showed your book on there. I said, yeah. How much did they make from having me on from advertising on their show? And I showed it when somebody mentioned something that it was an appropriate response to. Yeah. And so he backed off a bit. But... 
for anybody who's listening to think that you get paid. Uh, they all pay me what you pay me, Tim. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean. I, yeah. I, I don't like people to give me a hard time about something that they're wrong about. You're absolutely. right about, okay. But, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, so yeah. he'll be lost, and I don't. I suppose it's known who's going to take his place. Uh, yeah, Pierce Morgan. He's Pierce a British Morgan. guy. Somebody told me that, and uh, I don't know whether his people are going to go for UFOs or not. Uh you know, I know that uh, there are some shows where they guarantee me that they'll have a big audience because it's UFOs, and certainly Coast to Coast does well. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I should contact, try to contact them and see if I can get my reservation in for, uh, you know. But why don't we do a UFO show only with people who know something? Yeah. yeah that would be nice. Yeah, impossible. But it would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice but impossible. That that seems to be the case. Hey, I was on Merv Griffin twice, and oh wow, he didn't have any debunkers on. Uh, surprisingly, and uh, he was very sharp. Incidentally, I really enjoyed his interviews, which surprised me because I, I didn't expect that. But uh, and I was on the uh, Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder, uh, Betty Hill, and I were on, and. Uh, uh, Spiegel uh, in New York, and uh, there were no noisy negativists on. He was looking for information, and he got it. It was a good show. Well, I just saw they had uh, Michi Okaku on the uh, Conan O'Brien show, so maybe that, that could be your next venue. Real? Well, you know, I'm I'm going to be doing a show in a strange place with Michi Okaku. The Saudi Arabian government is having a huge conference uh about innovation huh. in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, toward the end of January. Oh, wow. There are going to be 120 speakers, and they expect an attendance of about 800. And there is one panel that will be about innovation and UFOs. There will be five of us there, and uh, Nick Pope will be there. Uh, Jacques Vallée will be there. Oh, wow. Myself and Michio Kaku and... And an Arabian that I don't know anything about, I'm, I'm going to look him up. But uh, and they're expecting, like I said, 800 people. And I saw a little note: the cost to attend this conference, not for the speakers, thank God, is it's like 4,500 bucks. Oh my God! Wow. And you know what I like about it is it's going to be a lot warmer in Saudi Arabia at the end of January than in Fredericton, New Brunswick. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but Michio, I've done Michio's radio show a couple of times, uh, and you know this, it's only an hour and fifteen minute panel, mm -hmm. so we each get you know a little over ten minutes plus discussion. But I'm very impressed by the other people who are speaking. The head of Disney is going to be there. Oh, wow. Former Prime Minister of England, Tony Blair. Former Prime Minister of Canada, Jean Chrétien. And a whole bunch of other people that I didn't recognize all the people, but their positions. Wheels with uh, Boeing and IBM and places like that. Uh, they're really putting on a one heck of a show. Uh uh, they're not going to let us sell books there, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the price for attendance, I don't know if they're gonna, uh, the attendees will be able to afford any books after they get there. So, <laughs> well, I look at it the other way. If you're going to afford true. to go, you're going to afford to buy. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, they got money to burn these folks. Damn, that sounds like quite a show. That's another uh, another nation for you to plant your plant your pushpin in there for. Yeah, yeah, I've only spoken in 16 countries, Canada and the United States, but that'll be the 17th, and then March I'm doing Roklaw, I look at it, W-R-O-C-L-A-W, Poland. Oh, wow. I'm going to do a whole day with the group there, and... Uh, I've been to Poland, but I've never given a UFO lecture. I gave one about uh, nuclear methods in agriculture, if you can believe. Oh, wow. That must have been back in the day, I assume, right? It was in the 80s, yeah, and uh, that was before the Iron Curtain was lifted and stuff like that. So I yeah. imagine it's changed a little bit there. But uh, And there's a group there that's going to have me on all day, and then I'm supposed to meet with a Polish officer who's going to tell me about data that they've collected about UFOs, which well, might be interesting. Yeah, sounds like it will be. Wow. So you're not slowing down at all, it sounds like, so that's good. Well, it seems like I'm not really going slow. Oh, I'll be at a TruthCon in Atlanta the first week of February. Nice. Nice, nice. So you're, you're getting out there. That's still still good to hear, so... It's good to know, and especially this international travel. I'm, I'm, I'm just impressed. I'm really stunned by this Saudi Arabian conference. Sounds fascinating. I'll have to look more into it. Well, it's a long ways. And also, I was in Stroudsburg, France. Uh, I'd spoken in France before, but just a month or two ago, a lot of people there for a conference. Uh, the translator apologized afterwards, saying she wasn't able to keep up with me. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what those people heard. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing this for so long, you probably, she probably wasn't ready for such a polished pro. So, I guess that's it. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I we'll... should have stumbled more. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, as as is the the tradition here on the holiday special, we opened up the the floor here to the listeners and got quite a wide variety of questions. And I, I sort of, as I said to you, cut cut my questions short a little bit this year because there were so many responses. I was just blown away by how many people responded and, um, you know, ranging from the the scientific UFO-related stuff to some more, you know, existential-type stuff. So I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in getting your thoughts on these. Okay. Uh, so we'll we'll get going here. And some of the most of the names are, are pretty normal. So, but we start out well with the strangest one, which is uh, Ich bin Albertischen. I don't even know something German. So that's that's his name, and he he wants to know uh, where would you say these UFOs are coming from, assuming they're not man-made. Okay. Uh, obviously, we, no, they don't wear license plates, and we don't have a bureau checking the license, driver's license. <laughs> but the case uh, of Betty and Barney Hill is the only case I know of that gives us a really good handle on where those particular uh, aliens originated. That's from uh, a planet around either Zeta-1 reticuli or Zeta-2 reticuli. And... Uh, that's the constellation of Reticulum. you got to go below Florida to see it's really a southern sky constellation. It means the net. Mm -hmm. And the uh, two stars, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 Reticulum, are unique in our neighborhood. I mean, I think the neighborhood's crawling with life all over the place because I don't see anything special about us. Some people would get mad at me about that, but what the heck. Uh, these two stars are only an eighth of a light year apart from each other. That's 30 times closer to each other. They're both sun-like stars, but it's 30 times closer to each other than the sun is to the next star over. So we're out in the boonies. They have next-door neighbors. Secondly, 
that means, incidentally, from a planet around one looking at the other star, you can see it all day long, and doesn't take fancy equipment to determine that there is that there are planets and there's life over there, the characteristics of the atmosphere. Uh, oh, and they also are at least a billion, some say three billion years older than the sun, those two stars. So one would expect they might have some technology a little more advanced than we are, Yeah. than ours. You know, suppose they got started 500 years before we did. It could have been 5 million, you understand. Mm -hmm. So I think there, that there's civilizations all over the place out there. Uh, interstellar travel is not the big deal that some people want to make it. That doesn't mean we haven't done it. We have done it yet, but uh, you use nuclear fusion, and there's undoubtedly something better. But let's not forget that with nuclear fusion, you can kick particles out the back end of a rocket that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in the dumb old chemical rocket. So we're not talking it's a little better. You know, or just a mite better, 10 million times better. That's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds good. All right, the next question comes from Jeremy Boston. He wants to know if there has been any new evidence or research regarding UFOs that has made you reevaluate what you believe the phenomena to be. Well, in a positive sense, sure. Uh, I mentioned earlier some of the astronomical stuff. In other words, now that we know there's planets all over the place, uh, but I'm thinking of things like uh, a book that's going to be out uh, hopefully by the end of the year, in which I will be writing the forward for by Scott Ramsey and his wife Suzanne about the Aztec incident, Aztec, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that's had a bad rap from all kinds of people over the years, people who didn't do any research. These guys, uh, the two of them, Suzanne and uh, Scott, have done an enormous amount of research, spent a ton of money, and I've read chunks of the book already, and that was a very solid case on March 28th, 1948, and uh, that's going to shock a lot of people. And, you know, one is unusual if you got at least two. Oh, well, I guess these things are dropping out of the sky, hither and yon. That means we've had one uh, for some time. This was an intact one, you understand. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, okay. so that has helped. And then the the uh, space uh, astronomy, uh, all that sort of stuff, makes you even more certain that uh, life is commonplace out there and we're not the big shots we like to think we are. Okay, the next one comes from Vamp Elvis. And he says, and I, I'm not going to correct this one because I, I actually have a, a slight follow-up question to this one. He, he says, I would like to know if Dr. Friedman has examined the electrical model of the universe in an in-depth manner, and if so, does he find the theory compelling in manner, suggesting that it may challenge our current model of cosmology, or if he would liken it to an interested theoretical exercise with no practical application? Or has he reached some other conclusion? And the follow-up I had first was, how often do you get called Dr. Friedman? Probably constantly. Too often, yeah. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, you mentioned Larry King earlier. When I did that first show out in the desert, he introduced me as a doctor. And I said, no, he's the doctor. Steve Greer was there. Uh, I'm just the physicist. 
only a master's degree. Uh, sorry, in industry, you don't need to have a PhD. I mean, pile higher and deeper. Who needs it? You know. Exactly. I uh, use that line all the time myself. So. <laughs> but uh, no, I have, can't say I've looked at the, the electrical theory of the universe. On the other hand, there's a chapter in Science Was Wrong about the electrical influences in the solar system. The solar storms, the cosmic rays, the energy coming from Jupiter, and their influence not only on our planet, but on the people. You know, Dr. Becker, who was able to correlate admissions to a veterans' mental hospitals with the Earth's electric field, uh, which shakes up some people. Uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky and his predictions. So, yes, the... And also in the chapter on uh, so-called global warming, it's given man way too much credit. Uh, the climate changes up, down, backwards, forwards, whatever you want. Yeah. But don't give man the credit for changing it. CO2 isn't even the biggest by far of the greenhouse gases. Water vapor is, and there are others that are more important than CO2. So we'd like to think how powerful we are, and the rich countries should give what are they talking yesterday in Cancun? A hundred billion dollars to make up to the poor companies about the need for a low carbon emission. Balderdash! Uh, <laughs> it's, it's garbage. So, yeah, electricity is much more important in the universe, electrical forces, plasma physics, all that sort of thing, than had been given credit for in the past. Okay. Uh, we need more work. That seems to be the case across the board. Uh, we need more work on all this stuff. All right, now G Wiz wants to know, with all the new info about hypnosis, and he's referencing uh, this Emma Woods controversy that's uh, erupted oh, yeah. lately, do you feel that it is still a valid tool? And if so, why? And if not, do you have any suggestions to help move this area of investigation forward? Well, certainly the Emma Woods business is a pain in the butt. And it shouldn't have happened, and I don't know what got into David to do David Jacobs to do so many sessions over the phone, long distance. I don't like it one little bit. Um, it, it's no better or worse than the guy who's doing it. The thing about the Betty and Barney Hill case, for example, as described in the book Captured yeah. by myself and Kathleen Martin, Betty's niece, who has all the tapes and has transcribed them all and so forth is that Dr. Simon knew nothing about flying saucers, mm -hmm. but he knew an awful lot about helping people find what happened during lost time, usually shell shock war veterans. He ran a hospital at 3,000 beds for guys from World War II. And, you know, your buddy's head gets blown off next to you. That can leave an impression, a bad one. <laughs> uh, and so uh, hypnosis, when properly done, can be very useful. When badly done, it can do harm. And that's unfortunate. And we do need to remember that roughly 30% of abductees remember the experience without hypnosis. But I'll tell you, one of the debunkers uh, said, oh, Betty Barney was excited under hypnosis, but Betty sounded like somebody taking a walk through the supermarket. Well, I don't know where he's getting that from, but I'll tell you, I've listened to some of those tapes, and if you read, listen to the tapes and read the transcriptions, that was no supermarket. Dr. Simon had to stop one session each of them uh, because he wasn't sure that they could handle the absolute terror 
as they relived, not retold, relived what happened to them. So hypnosis by itself is neutral. It depends on who's using it. It can be very effective. It can do a lot of good. It can do some harm. It's kind of like, you know, police have used it to recover the license plate of a car that a cop sees driving away when his buddy just got shot. Yeah. He's worried about his buddy, and he sees the license plate, but he's not paying attention because there are other things going on. Okay, if you take him back and have him relive that peacefully, you know, like you're seeing it on the screen or something, it's amazing how accurate the recall can be, and that gives you the license plate of the car. Now, you need more than that, obviously. Like a bullet hole in the trunk would help. <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But it is useful. It has been used to help in stopping smoking and stopping eating. You know, so it depends on the practitioner and the rules which he lives by to do it. And Simon was a number one. Now, do you think in light of this whole Emma Woods thing that we need to reevaluate a lot of the information that abduction research has been built on over the last like couple decades? Well, I, I don't know that we need to, we, we need to be cautious, let's put it that way. And we need to watch what conclusions we draw from it. Remember that we're dealing with people who are fallible observers. Mm -hmm. You've got interpret observation and interpretation. And so you've got to be really careful about the conclusions you draw from these things. And so it is a useful tool when used properly by skilled people. I'll tell you a quick little experience. I once took a course on hypnosis many, many years ago, a medical possibility for somebody in the family. The teacher put one of the girls under and had her go back in time. And she starts talking like a younger person and all that stuff. And he takes her back, he thought he was on safe ground, to her eighth birthday. And she burst into tears. Turns out her father had died on her eighth birthday. Oh, God. And so I was so glad he was there to deal with that, to get her out of that without doing damage to her. You don't want her to relive the anguish of her father's death, obviously. Mm -hmm. So you need somebody who's skilled and who has training in, I'll call it psychology, the social sciences, if you will. And not everybody who does it uh, has that kind of training. Uh, it, it's an unfortunate thing. It will get in the way, no question about it. Hopefully it will keep some people from doing what they shouldn't have done in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the next question comes from Orpheus. He says, being that you seem to take a somewhat more practical approach to UFOs and their research, do you ever find it difficult to deal with the more fringe aspects of ufology, and has that ever impeded your research in any way? Well, you know, it depends what you mean by fringe aspects. I consider the nasty, noisy negativists a fringe aspect, <laughs> and that's a pain in the neck. Uh, yeah, the fringe aspects do get in the way. I haven't really been impeded. Uh, and usually, if I've looked into the subject matter at hand, I can give an opinion based on having looked at it. And it doesn't bother me to say, no, I've checked on that. Uh, well, you know, you got Bob Lazar. I just had a guy try to give me a hard time about him. Uh, it sounds like you're jealous of him. Surely, you, you know, he's got something good to offer and so forth. So I went in the chapter and verse of the research that I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, which he obviously hadn't been aware of. Uh, 
So fringe aspects are a pain in the neck. The cult groups, uh, you know, who want to make gurus out of people, it, it is a pain in the neck. But it's the price you pay. Uh, what can I say? That, you know, we're dealing with social sciences. We, we consider a guy a very good baseball player if he gets a hit 35% of the time. He gets paid a lot of money to do that. <laughs> yeah. We don't say he's a lousy player because 65% of the time he doesn't even get a hit, you know. Exactly, yeah. So you, you put up with, as Goodman Ace used to say, with the bitter, or his wife, with the bitter with the batter or something like that. You, uh, it, it goes along with the territory. We're dealing with human beings. We're not dealing with machines. Yeah, yeah. And it seems, if anything, it it would seem like the fringe aspects would, unfortunately, like just co-opt your, your stuff to bolster their fringe arguments, whether it's for, with Roswell or with MJ-12, you know. They oh, they get mad at me. They get mad at me. And, you know, I consider, frankly, and some people will get mad at me for saying this, the opposition to the three primary MJ-12 documents, the Eisenhower Briefing Document, the Color Twining Memo, and the Truman Forrestal Memo, it sounds to me fringy to me. I keep trying to get people to say, uh, the objectors, what is it about these documents that makes you think they're phony? I've dealt with a whole slew of these supposed attributes in Top Secret Magic and in a four-part article long one on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. What argument can you make that isn't rebutted by my detailed investigation? And nobody gives me answers, darn it. So I consider that fringy. Everybody, I mean, what, what is a line like, everybody knows those documents are fraudulent, except you, Friedman. That's not useful. Yeah. Why are they fraudulent? You know, why did Phil Class pay me $1,000 for proving him wrong about the typeface on one of them? Mm -hmm. He told everybody about challenging me, nobody about paying me. The check is in the book, Flying Saucers and Science. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't recommend that book enough. That's a, that's, you know, that's a must-have and a must-read. A perfect gift, actually, uh, since we're in the holiday episode here. Perfect gift for your oh, yeah. for your friends and family, you know, who are trying to understand why the hell you're interested in this crazy UFO subject. That'll, that'll tra straighten them out. Yeah. Merry Christmas! This just in, Santa Claus is dead. It's the Banal of America audio. Holiday special featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy holidays. It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we smile a little easier, we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, Jason Offit, who you may know, he's an author and a blogger and a very prolific author, and he says he actually uh, had lunch with you in 2008 and says you're one of the coolest guys in the biz. <laughs> that sounds good. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> he says, describe your perfect day, and by that I mean who would say what to make all your brilliant research seem worthwhile? Oh, boy, I don't know. I've had hundreds of letters from the colleges where I've spoken, and I have had some very nice comments about the books, saying it's a must-buy and stuff like that. And, you know, it would be nice if uh, Michio Kaku would read my book and say good things about it, because he's highly respected in the astrophysics community. Uh, the astrophysics community generally doesn't know anything about flying saucers or deep space travel, 
which, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Here's the guys talking about the universe, but they know nothing about nuclear propulsion. How many of them know that we actually operated nuclear rockets on the ground way back in the 60s? You know, people look at me, what do you mean? I said, well, Los Alamos built one. The reactor is seven feet in diameter. The power level was 4,400 megawatts, twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam. What? <laughs> Astrophysics doesn't take into account <laughs> that kind of research. Yeah, yeah. So somebody like that would be nice. Uh, it would have been nice if my former classmate, Carl Sagan, uh, had been around uh, to say something nice about one of my books. Uh, I was at his home a year before he died, and we had a very pleasant conversation and stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, he hadn't known how wrong he was about UFOs. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, what if, like, you met the president, uh, you know, and he said, even if it was just, uh, you know, as an aside, you know, off the record sort of thing, where he said, you know, Stan, you've been right all along or something like that. I'm sure you'd appreciate that. Right? Well, yeah, that <laughs> would certainly be appreciated. And, uh, you know, Presidents go uh, get elected and unelected, so to speak, most two terms now. Uh, uh, intelligence agencies go on forever, and so they're the ones I worry about. I don't know whether the presidents even have a need to know for the latest scoop. Yeah, that's probably uh, true. You know, give me a Nobel Prize winner. What the heck? That would do it. Or uh, well, look, Edgar Mitchell, six man to walk on the moon, wrote the forward for flying saucers in science. What more can you ask for? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Forget the Nobel Prize winner. Just give you the Nobel Prize already. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Thomas, who is an up-and-coming writer and blogger, he wants to know, if a Roswell-type crash happened in the next year or so, how do you think the U.S. government would handle it, i.e. the story being on the front pages of newspapers and stuff, would they retract the story and say it was just a, just a weather balloon or just let people know? Well, I don't think they just let people know. That's a very big step, and I'm sure there's a contingency plan. I mean, what if the aliens uh, came down in the middle of the World Soccer Championship or yeah. the uh, Super Bowl or something like that? Uh, they'd have to say something. But I think they'd be better at covering it up. Remember, the, the best equipment, all those radar installations on the ground and in the air and in the sky or space systems, all those belong to the government. So they'll see something coming down if it's just a crash. I think they would uh, say it was a super special airplane, one of ours. I don't think they'd go public, and they certainly wouldn't let people in, so to speak. I mean, people forget their contingency plans. If... Uh, a Soviet uh, missile nose cone or a space uh, system came down. They'd put up a guard line around it, a periphery. There'd be strong measures taken to keep people from getting access. If one of ours, a high-performance vehicle, came down, you think you're going to put it on display? We don't want anybody to get their mitts on the pieces. Yeah. So that's standard uh, Cold War technology kind of thing. Uh, when a Soviet nuclear reactor came down, Cosmos 954, way back in the 70s, up in near Great Slave Lake in Canada, out in the middle of nowhere, there were retrieval teams went up there and searched, I forget how many thousand square miles, to find pieces of that because they wanted the technology. They wanted a handle on what the Russians were doing. And 
you know, this would always be the case if something came down. So would they always tell the truth? No. And I don't blame them. I don't want technical data put out on the table, frankly. Yeah. I mean, there's Osama out there, last I heard, or a replacement. I'm not sure which. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Kim Jong-il, so we can always worry about him. Uh, yeah, I'd worry about him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that you say the cover-up would, would be better because uh, – with the you know with the 24-hour news cycle and the Twitter and all that, you'd think that that it would be almost impossible to you know maintain a, a cover-up in this environment. But then also I think about the WikiLeaks situation, and you're not seeing UFO documents out there, regardless well, of how powerful they seem to be now. What what's his name? Uh, I forget his name. I forget the, the guy. Yeah, the WikiLeaks yeah. guy. A ends in A N G E. Oh, Assange. Assange, yeah. Uh, he has said, he's been asked, that uh, he made some kind of flippant comment and says there's stuff to be released that will have something about UFOs. But we know from the New York Times and other sources that there is no top secret material in these documents. 5% are secret and the rest is lower than secret. So. You the, the system was set up because there was a big complaint after 9-11 that the intelligence agencies weren't sharing information, which is certainly true. So they made it so that uh, there's this network that a lot of people have access to, but there ain't no really highly classified stuff on that network, and these people don't have a need to know or high-level security clearance. So governments know how to keep secrets. I worked under security for 14 years. I'll guarantee you governments can keep secrets. Uh, well, just just look at the fact that we broke the German code. It was extraordinarily important in winning the war in Europe, We, the British primarily. There were 12,000 people at Bletchley Park uh, intercepting, decoding, translating German military communications and being very careful about who they sent those to. Okay, you'd think the war is over, they'd stand up and shout, look what we did. It was 25 years after the war was over that we finally admitted that. The reason being, other countries were using the German code techniques, the Enigma machines, and we were reading their mail too. <laughs> we were about to go public. That's 25 years, 12,000 people. Uh, so the governments can keep secrets. Yeah. All right, now Tony Sakalowskis wants to know if I could ask you about the face on Mars. So here you go. What's what's your take on the face on Mars? Well, frankly, it's in my gray basket. Uh, certainly NASA hasn't been, uh, how shall I put this, upfront about everything. They put out some crummier pictures than the original ones. I'm not a big fan of Richard Hoagland's work because uh, he often goes past the data. It wouldn't surprise me if there were something up there. Uh, there's a book out by Nick Redfern, new book, NASA Conspiracy, something mm -hmm. like that. And I've just started it. I uh, just got it the other day. And he goes into NASA and secrecy and stuff that they have withheld and so forth. So uh, anybody who thinks they're not keeping serious, I mean, I worked on nuclear rockets. The space and NASA Space Nuclear Propulsion Office was in charge of that program, and all the technical work was classified. So anybody who thinks, oh, they're just a civilian outfit, they're not keeping anything classified, is 
full of baloney. Yeah. Uh, remember, NASA was originally NACA, National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, and they're the guys who did wind tunnel tests, who figured out better ways to build airplanes to make them go faster and use less fuel and all that kind of stuff. That stuff was all classified. So, you know, anybody who thinks that uh, they wouldn't cover up stuff on Mars if we found out something like that uh, is wrong. Of course they would. So they may very well be there. Remember, it's not just the pyramid, so-called, or the face, rather, but there are pyramids nearby, uh, what people have referred to as pyramids. So that's one that's in my gray basket. I'd sure like to get the real story on that, but I don't have it. Seems like NASA's slipped, you know, into the periphery now since, uh, obviously, when they were so huge and in, in during the space race and everything. So they're, yeah. you know, given the freedom, if you will, to operate more in the shadows now than they were in the, in the past. <laughs> Good way to put it. Yes. Um, Red Sun Superman says, uh, considering the debacle that was the Peter Jennings UFO special five years ago, <laughs> seems, yes. wow, can't believe it's been five years already. Um, Almost six, February 24th. <laughs> what do you think of the recent trend of some networks like the History Channel to treat the UFO topic with a healthy degree of seriousness and to devote a good chunk of shows towards fringe topics? Well, the kicker is these guys know that making these shows is cheap. Uh, you know, they pay everybody what I get paid, which is nothing. <laughs> and you can rerun them without having to repay, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think they've recognized that there's enormous public interest. So why not go with your strength? You know, if people are going to watch, that's what I'll do shows about. It's a copycat industry. The problem with the majors, if you will, and that Peter Jennings show was indeed a debacle, uh, a mockumentary, I call it. <laughs> and, you know, some of it was unconscionable. I mean, how can you interview Jesse Marcel and not mention that he was a medical doctor, a serving colonel in Iraq at the time he was filmed, and a flight surgeon and a helicopter pilot and did 225 combat hours flying helicopters in Iraq, he got called back in at age 68, mind you, and not mention any of that, which certainly goes toward credibility, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yeah. I also and, think of the uh, the final Dr. John Mack interview that was left on the cutting room floor. Well, they interviewed a whole great number of people, about 150, and only 50 of us made it, and I just barely, they interviewed me for an hour. I was on for 20 seconds. They called me a promoter twice. They never said I was a physicist, never said I'd worked on advanced propulsion systems or anything like that. They said the Roswell witnesses crawled out of the woodwork. They wish they'd have paid my phone bill when Bill Moore and I were out finding people. <laughs> uh, would have made a nice bonus. Uh, so uh, at least they, they are taking half a step over by talking about arsenic in bacteria, by talking about planets around other stars, you know, maybe it's to get away from the bad news of the economy and all the rest of that, but uh, they're slowly moving over. But, you know, Max Planck, a great German physicist once said that new ideas come to be accepted, not because their opponents come to believe in them, but because their opponents die and a new generation grows up that's accustomed to them. So we got all these media moguls who don't dare admit they'd ignored the biggest story of the millennium for 63 years. 
they're going to die. And the younger guys, well, what's the big deal? Extraterrestrial life. Sure, everybody knows they're out there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. They're, they're going to want credit for breaking the story, yeah. Yeah, there's a change, and I'm glad to see it. Absolutely. Uh, Randy Cheek wants to know, how did you meet your wife, and what does your family think of your interest in UFOs? I take it you're probably very popular at the family reunions. Well, they take me for granted. Oh. <laughs> uh, my <laughs> wife had been a stewardess, uh, flight attendant, sorry, wrong Wrong title. Different era. <laughs> many, many years ago, yes, a different era. And we met, and things happened, and uh, we just celebrated, uh, my goodness, 36 years together. So Congratulations. Yeah, that's a milestone these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, Look, yeah. my, parents, my parents were married for 67 years, would you believe? Oh, wow. That's a real milestone, and uh, one of the reasons I am so confident I will keep going on, both parents live to be 90, and I still haven't spent overnight in a hospital for me. I've been there with my kids, and I'm 76, so we got years to go, man. <laughs> Just to sort of like uh, get into that again, uh, but what does your family you know, think of UFO, of your interest in UFOs? Well, it varies. Uh, my wife isn't interested, and I don't know, she may have read one of my books, I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, my daughter is deaf, and she had the chance, I gave a lecture near where she was living in California, and uh, they asked me if it would be okay if they put a, an interpreter on the stage, not knowing my daughter was deaf, and I said, sure, I'd love it. So she brought a bunch of her friends, deaf friends, and they were delighted because now you can watch a lot of television. It's got the written text down the bottom, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of them had seen me, but they, she was very pleased that they enjoyed the performance. And uh, my older son has been with me at lectures. And uh, now my daughter was a journalist for a number of years, and she, uh, she never interviewed me because they don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So she's sort of middle of the road, and she, uh, they don't give me a hard time. And they like the, well, I don't know whether they like the fact, but they know I travel a lot, and that sounds, uh, you know, sort of exotic when you live in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. <laughs> well, yeah, it, yeah. hey, Fredericton named a day, uh, August 27th, uh, 2007, Stanton Friedman Day in Fredericton. That's wow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That was good. The people here, nobody gives me a hard time here. And I was down in St. John, New Brunswick, 60 miles away. My wife and I went down for weekend. And uh, everywhere we went, there were people, you know, keep up the good work. Oh, I see you all the time on television, stuff like that. I didn't know I was that well known. But uh, and they were not afraid to say so. Uh, so and nobody gave me a hard time is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's great. James Archer wants to know, and here's one of the existential ones, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? He finally made it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the reasons I do what I'm doing, as a nuclear physicist, I'm very much concerned about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I can do anything that gets people to start thinking of themselves as earthlings, instead of Americans, Canadians, British, Peruvians, whatever, uh, then I'm happy to do it because I know something about nuclear weapons. 
you know, I like to point out that our first H-bomb had a three-mile-wide fireball and released the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. That's scary stuff. So if I can get people to move along toward a path that I think God would say, hey, that's helping keep the peace here. Yeah. Also, I do something else. I'm not afraid to, because I like my boss, and my boss likes me. It's me. <laughs> uh, I point out to people, to try to see us as aliens must see us, that this past year, we Earthlings spent roughly a trillion dollars on things military, and every single day, 30,000 children died needlessly of preventable disease and starvation. There is something wrong with that picture. Mm-hmm. We're a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. And people, somebody's got to say that. So I think I would be given credit for trying to move people in the direction of worrying more about feeding the poor and the sick and less about shooting them. Exactly, yeah. Marty Littlejohn wants to know, he wants to know if you think that UFOs could be from the inner Earth, and that's why the ETs have large black eyes and grayish skin. I don't think so. I don't think you'd be able to build technology down there, and why would you build huge motherships capable of going up, up, and away? Uh, if If home is down below, you don't build enormous motherships, and I don't know where you'd get the technology to do it, down okay. there. Yeah. So, no, I don't think they're from the inner earth. All right. Now, this guy you know, Greg Bishop, author of the outstanding book, Project Beta, he he wants me to ask you to state your best case for the ETH. Well, you know, I never talk about the ETH. What kind of hypothesis? The the overwhelming evidence says that some underline 18 times, some UFOs are alien spacecraft. You can talk about the Hill case. You can talk about Roswell. You can talk about the RB-47 case. Uh, why should it be one case that everything stands on? It's just like because a guy gets a home run today, that doesn't mean he's earned his salary for the year. Mm-hmm. It's the repeated evidence from all over the place. The same things keep happening over and over again. And if we're seeing things, uh, let's say in 1955, uh, whose appearance clearly indicates they're manufactured, we're not talking about a light in the sky, and whose behavior, the ability to go up, down, back, forward, silently, make right-angle turns at high speed, says they weren't made here. If we could build them, we would. We used them, the, the um, stealth fighter in wartime, all the other things we build, that's where the effort comes from, military. If it wasn't made here, it was made someplace else. That doesn't say where, it doesn't say why, it doesn't say how. It just says not manufactured here, and that's a very big conclusion. So... I don't think it's a hypothesis. I think it's a clear, rational conclusion. The evidence, you know, in a civil trial is a preponderance of the evidence. And I don't see where this is a criminal matter, where, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people can be sent to the gas chamber. Right? I guess they don't use those anymore. Well, maybe they do. <laughs> I don't have any dealings with them. On the testimony of one witness. So, you know, we're not talking about proof in the sense of uh, mathematical proof. We're talking about evaluation of evidence. Mm -hmm. 
and, uh, you know, was Babe Ruth a great player? No, he was a terrible player because, look, he didn't even get on base most of the time. Well, wrong standard. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Keith Chester, who you may know as the author of the really great book on Foo Fighters, uh, yeah. Strange Company, outstanding book as well. He wants to know... If you would have done things differently, if you'd been hired in J. Allen Hynek's place as consultant to the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book and Project Sign Grudge, all that, would you have rocked the boat? Well, I would have, but then would, I wouldn't have stayed there very long, would I? They wanted somebody who was a guaranteed not boat rocker. And, you know, what? Allen was the same age as my father, so we're, we're different generations. A very nice gentleman. But he was a Czechoslovakian. And they were accustomed to being overrun by every country moving across Europe, a different one out. They, they observed. They didn't rock the boat. It would be fatal for most of them. So, yes, I would have done things very, very differently. But there's another part of the problem, too. I worked in industry where the object is to get a job done. Mm-hmm. I didn't work at a university where the object is publish or perish. The astronomical community has been very guilty, and you can see that in Science Was Wrong, there are many examples in there, of not knowing about technology. Uh, Alan's first question to me, the first time I met him, I was vetted, a friend of his uh, heard me speak at a campus in Chicago, and if I passed muster, he would take me up to see Alan, and I passed muster, and his, his first question was, why didn't you get your Ph.D.? Uh, you know, and I said, because I was worked my way through five years of college, and I wanted to get out in the real world. Uh, I was a good waiter at a restaurant in the south side of Chicago. Uh, worked my way through. I learned a lot about food. And I couldn't afford it from the other side of the table. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is Alan would never do his homework about interstellar travel. And so it was a constant problem that he knew something was going on, and he was willing to say that after 20 or so years. But he had trouble with the idea they could be coming here from someplace else. I worked on fusion propulsion systems. I worked on fission propulsion systems. I'm not worried about that. Oh, it's a question of money. I mean, I'm not saying I can build you one. Uh, you know, Give me $1,000, I'll build you one tomorrow, and we'll go to the stars the next day. That's not how it works. I shock people when I say way back in 1958 when I was working on nuclear airplanes for General Electric, we spent $100 million that year. We employed 3,500 people, 1,100 of them were engineers and scientists. And they look at me and say, hey, that was a lot of money for back then. Yes, it was. Big project. And we never did operate an airplane on nuclear power. We operated jet engines on nuclear power, but they were on the ground. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm saying is Alan and I come from very different backgrounds. And uh, this business of publisher perish versus get the job done. I'm a Rickover fan. Now, there's a hero for me. Uh, yeah, the first nuclear submarine was built in 1956. And he was always being told that what he p- proposed was stupid. He should be building battleships, why submarines, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But he was right. And he had guts enough to push the program through. I worked on at least five programs that needed a rickover desperately. And remember, the British Astronomer Royal in 1956 said space travel is utter bilge. Nobody will ever spend the money, and what good would it do, he said. 
we should be spending money on better equipment for astronomy. That was a year before Sputnik. And what field benefited most from the space program? Astronomy. Exactly. A strange world we live in. That's for sure. Lone Gunman wants to know, uh, if Bob Lazar is really a fraud in your eyes, then why has he never cashed in on his esoterica star status? He's never done a book, no documentaries. He might have participated in one years ago. No speaking tours. He also hides from the spotlight and only does interviews every four, every few years with only George Knapp because they're friends. What really did he gain by trying to be a whistleblower? It's messed up his life more than anything. Hey, I'm a physicist. He got fame. He didn't get fortune, although there were a lot of copies of his tapes sold. Uh, I, I can't understand uh, child molesters. I don't understand pedophiles. I don't understand people who commit suicide. Uh, you know, the fact that we don't understand is not a reason to say that it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. What we Bob was ready. There were plans to do a movie about the courageous young physicist, uh, and uh, it, it it fell through. He was ready to do a movie, uh, and I think the reason he stayed out of the limelight is he finally realized that people had caught on to him, uh, and I just. Just today? No, yesterday. Uh, responded to somebody who was saying, oh, I'm just jealous of Lazar. Surely there's something to him. Well, I detailed all the stuff that I had done. Yeah. Checking at MIT, checking at Caltech, checking on a guy he said taught him physics at Caltech who only taught at Pierce Junior College, did have Bob in his class. Uh, if you can go to MIT, you don't go to Pierce Junior College, and it's 2,500 miles away in the San Fernando Valley. I talked to his high school. He finished in the bottom third of his class and had one science course, chemistry. You don't get into MIT finishing, as he did, in the bottom third of his class with one science course. The element 115 thing is nonsense. At one point, he said that Los Alamos had 500 pounds of the stuff. It's got a very short half-life. There's no way to accumulate 500 pounds. Yeah. Uh, and it goes on and on. So don't ask me to explain why. There have been plenty of frauds in ufology, and maybe it's to thumb his nose at the guys he thought he was smarter than. He probably is smarter than a lot of them. I've always said he's a smart guy, sharp guy. He's in Michigan now, for anybody who wants to look up United Nuclear Systems in Michigan, and they'll sell you stuff for your uh, science-related business. Okay. Colin Reed wants to know, do you ever wake up in the morning and think, oh, hell, I've got to do another radio interview today where I have to talk about Roswell and MJ-12. Is there any time in recent memory where you've become cynical and disheartened by the whole UFO field? Or is there always something new in it for you? It's always something new. What keeps me going is I enjoy doing shows like this. I enjoy the feeling of educating the public. And I'll admit I enjoy when I get recognized walking in the supermarket, especially when they don't come at me with guns in their hands. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So I've never been threatened, incidentally. So, no, I'm still going strong. I enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoyed the jobs I had in industry, working for GE, GM, Westinghouse, Aerojet General, McDonnell Douglas. I just wish they hadn't been short-timers. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Well, it makes you it makes you wonder in a way if 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 the if the bottom hadn't fallen out of the nuclear propulsion field, then you know ufology may never have had you. Well, that's probably true. If you had told me back in the '60s that I'd wind up giving lectures all over the world, more than 700, 
uh, about flying saucer right or left by head off. I should add, incidentally, I've only had 11 hecklers, and two of them were drunk more than 700 lectures, so <laughs> I must be doing something right. Exactly. Uh, Sammy Urzetta wants to know your take on the Manhattan UFO sightings and the huge rotating pyramids that were photographed extensively over Moscow and China this past year. The Moscow and Chinese ones are still in my gray basket. I haven't seen really good data on those, and it's hard to know what to believe when you read some of the accounts. The New York ones, I'm leaning toward the balloon business, especially when you see pictures of balloon clusters that were being released for, uh, I don't know, was it a wedding or bar mitzvah yeah, <laughs> or something whatever. Like that. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I want exciting stuff. I mean, just a light in the sky that you can't identify isn't good enough. You know, I like hypermaneuverability and being able to go straight up and come back down and stuff like that. Uh, clear evidence of manufactured metallic stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The other stuff goes in my gray basket. What am I going to do with it? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's very nebulous. There's not much you can do with it. Uh, the final question here comes from David, also known as Ethel, on the BOA forum. He says, in a past life, or I guess you could say previously in your life, Stanton worked for a number of organizations on exotic propulsion and power systems before they were canceled for various reasons, as we've established here in, in previous interviews. I'd be really interested to know whether you see a place for these mothballed designs in today's world of dwindling fossil fuels. Could this now be the time to resurrect some of the innovative thinking you and your colleagues were involved with back in the 50s and 60s? Well, it might very well be. Uh, I'd love to see somebody talk about a fusion propulsion system for deep space travel using today's technology. It wouldn't be cheap. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think that there would be a place, and I think better, just as I mentioned, there's a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that can go 18 years without refueling. Mm -hmm. We could do better with trains and uh, commercial enterprises using nuclear energy than we have. It's kind of a shame that the military had to take the lead and nobody's grabbed it. Uh, yeah, we need better and different. We need a rickover for the transportation and the carbon and all this kind of business. I don't see one in sight, frankly. Yeah. And just as a follow-up, he, he wants to know if you think the U.S. government and or industry has continued this work in secret, and if so, have you seen any evidence? I haven't really. Uh, for a while, I worried about the Cash Landrum case down in Texas, where people did have evidence of radiation burns, if you will, that maybe it was a super-secret nuclear-powered aircraft. But I talked at length with John Schusler, an aerospace engineer who wrote a book on the case, and there were helicopters, and some people say, well, they were accompanying one of ours. But then when I checked, they went out over the Gulf. They kept going. They didn't come back to some local base. So other than that, I don't think – I think we've looked at these things. We're always looking at new, possibly better, and nuclear-powered bomber would be nice, you know. Uh, that was the whole idea. You could fly for a few thousand years without refuel – a few thousand – hours uh, without refueling have to replace the pilots but <laughs> yeah so uh, I, I don't see any good signs of anything more going on except the Navy stuff is really exciting yeah and that's it that's the last question and he, he closes it out with his best wishes to you and everyone else for a happy holiday season so it worked out perfectly here uh, for the final question 
www.stantonfriedman.com. There you go. Well, we already talked about sort of what's coming up next for you. You're going to be in Saudi Arabia and Poland and also down in Georgia for a convention, so people can and check. Lawrence, Kansas, and Burlington, Wisconsin, and Roswell. I'm telling you, he's the ufology's rock star, folks, that's for sure. <laughs> and and what about, you know, obviously you're still writing copious amounts of articles and stuff like that. Any any plans for any additional books coming up? How about the memoir that I've been pestering you about year after year? Any any news well, potential for that? Well, I'm doing some thinking about it, and uh, I may be teaching a course for the International Metaphysical University, an online course. And I'm looking for a movie, uh, what's the name of it, Magic Men. Mm-hmm. M-A-J-I-C, by Bryce Zabel, who did Dark Skies, and Don Schmidt and I sold our life story rights to Bryce, and uh, they have the rights to his book, Witness to Roswell, and mine, Top Secret Magic, and it would be a dramatic, powerful movie if it gets made, sort of all the President's Men and JFK together. How would that be, huh? Sounds pretty cool. And I have to, I hate to admit it as my name on five books, but... Movies still get seen by a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not too many people are reading nowadays, unfortunately. That's right, unfortunately, yes. And and, and, and plus, if the movie comes out, that would probably inspire a lot of people to go out and get the books. So. You're right. <laughs> no, no question. It would be a good thing. Any plans on who would play you yet in the movie? I'm thinking Paul Giamatti. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, sort of, he looks kind of like you. Well, some people have suggested Richard Dreyfuss. And somebody else told me the other day, Stan, Johnny Depp ought to play you. And I said, oh? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) He's a little younger than I am, I think, but uh, play the young me. I don't know. Would be appropriate for Dreyfus after Close Encounters, right? (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it would be quite a a connection. But if the movie comes out and they're working on the screenplay, that doesn't mean it's going to get made. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's quite a process. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, it could do a lot of good. Absolutely. Because Bryce is careful, competent, knowledgeable. Uh, He's co-authored a book, After Disclosure, with uh, Richard Dolan. Really good guy. And so that would I'd like to see that happen. Absolutely. Well, it's high time you got the cinematic treatment anyway for your contributions to this field. It's time you got recognized by the people outside of this field, the people who are, you know, who know about UFOs but don't yet know about Stan Friedman. It's it's overdue that they find out about what you've done for all of us. So, I didn't know there was anybody like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Oh man! Thanks so much, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me just uh, thank you once again for coming on the show and and you know embracing this holiday special, being a part of it. It is it's a thrill for me every year and and to work with you and, and to introduce you as haphazardly as I did it at Exeter was <laughs> was bad. Oh, thanks. Was a dream come true for me and and uh, you know I was joking with some other people. I started out running your slideshow at the X conference in 2004, and I think I helped you with your bags at the Crash Retrieval conference a few years later, and, and then I'm introducing you at Exeter, so when are we going to co-write a book? That seems to be the trajectory we're on. <laughs> I'm taking bets. Mark to the dartboard. There you go. Dan, it's been a real pleasure, and, and a highlight once again of my year, and I wish you the best and look forward to talking to you next holiday season. Okay. Thanks, Tim. That does it for the 6th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. I cannot thank Stanton Friedman enough for coming back on the show here for the 6th year of this amazing Festivus, and really for the way he has embraced this program. It truly 
means a lot to me. Of course, you want to check out Stan's new book, co-authored with Kathleen Martin, Science Was Wrong, and also all his other books. And you definitely want to stop by his website, www.stantonfriedman.com. Pretty simple, all one word, stantonfriedman.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And since we kind of gave it the short shrift last week, I've picked out four emails here that will cover a whole bunch of different topics. So let's get down to business. The first one comes from Jeff in New York City, and here's what he has to say. Just caught your latest with Bix Weir. Thanks for having him on. It was certainly an interesting idea. I've been trying to make sense of current events, and it certainly seems like someone is trying to blow the currency up. So it's nice to get an idea that it may be for a less bad reason. I've been looking for something to put in that place after listening to David Icke at the end of last season's BOA Audio. It seems like there's got to be someone working against the reptilian's agenda, whatever that works out to be, and maybe this bit fits in there. I don't know, but I'm certainly keeping an eye on things every day. Keep up the good work, Jeff. First of all, thanks for writing in, Jeff, and happy holidays to you, my friend. I totally agree with you that it was nice to hear a conspiracy theory that was on the slightly more positive side, even though it sounds like we'd have to go through some rough times there if the road to Ruta theory is correct. Nonetheless, it was good to hear from someone who has sort of a more optimistic look at this really troubling world we're living in right now. And that's partially why I went out and got Bix Weir for the program, because his theory resonated so well on that positive scale. Regarding someone working against the reptilian's agenda, Jeff, that's what we're doing here on the program. So don't you worry, there is somebody out there fighting against the New World Order and bad things happening to all of us. And that's BOA Audio, that's all the great folks in Paranormal Radio, and of course that's all the great folks like you, Jeff, and all the awesome BOA Audio listeners that are tuning in each week to the program. We're putting up the good fight, we're trying to get educated, we're trying to spread the word about what's really going on in the world. And the more people we reach out to and the more people we enlighten, the better off I think we're all going to be. Once again, thanks for writing in, Jeff, and happy holidays. The next email, I think, was sort of a mass email, but I kind of wanted to read it because I was amused by it. And it comes from P314285. I don't even know what that means, but here's what P has to say. Why don't you publicize the truth behind 9-11? It's all covered in this interview with Dmitry Kozlov, a former officer of the Soviet Nuclear Intelligence Unit. This interview runs for over four hours and has 26 parts. And then I cut out all the rest, because he thoughtfully linked all 26 parts in the email. Thank you, P, for those 26 links. I don't know, I just want to read that one, because it made me laugh when I saw the 4 hours and 26 parts. My goodness, P, can't you guys get it settled down here into, like, you know, maybe 4 bite-sized chunks? 26 parts, who has time for that? You know, and we try to publicize the truth behind 9-11. We had Jim Barnes on in the season premiere, and we talked about it, so... Tune in to BOA Audio season premiere of season 6P, and you'll hear Jim Mars talk a little bit about 9-11. But truth be told, I'm kind of burned out on 9-11. I think a lot of other people in the esoteric community are, too. The whole story has fallen by the wayside. It's become JFK 2.0. Maybe we're going to hear more about it this coming year, 2011, the 10th anniversary. I'm sure there'll be an upsurge in activity amongst the 9-11 truth movement. But... I really am quite pessimistic about the whole scene there behind getting the truth out about 9-11. They've been trying for 10 years. It's just not holding water yet. It's not taking hold. So 
I'm going to keep an eye on it, as I always do with the 9-11 Truth Movement, but until I see something particularly compelling, I'm kind of keeping it on the back burner. Nonetheless, since you emailed me with this info on Dmitry Kozlov's interview, I'll spell his name so folks can Google search if they want and look into this. The name is Dmitry, D-I-M-I-T-R-I, Kozlov, K-H-A-L-E-Z-O-V. Dmitry Kozlov, apparently he's giving some four-hour interview sparsed out over 26 parts where he reveals stuff about 9-11, and P wanted all of you guys to know. So I've just publicized the truth about 9-11, P. I hope you're happy, and have a happy holiday, my friend. Up next is an excerpt from a post at the official BOA forum, the usofe.com, and it is from the thread devoted to our Gian Kassar interview. First of all, we got tons of feedback on the Gian Kassar interview. The thread at the BOA forum was huge. Got a lot of emails, got a lot of Facebook messages as well. So a lot of positive feedback from people, a lot of people who were really raving about it. Wanted to delve into one in particular, and it comes from a guy with somewhat of a goofy name, Old Balls, and he writes at the BOA forum, but his posts are usually very detailed and very thought-provoking. So here's what he has to say. It's excerpted from a lengthier post. This is the type of interview we don't get anywhere else, and it highlights Benal's ever-improving jiu-jitsu interviewing technique. Gian gets to give his thesis, present his supporting data in the order and at the place he wishes to, and what we get is a well-rounded and fleshed-out show with a wide range of provocative content. Benal never asks leading or simplified questions, only questions that hand the baton off to the interviewee. As a result, the interview is as far from commercialized sound bites as you can get. Mega kudos to Banal. I just, there's more to it than that. <laughs> I just want to read that because that was so nice, dude. I appreciate that. Old balls. What nice words you've said about me. I, I really appreciate it. And, and, you know, it's nice to see people understanding the jujitsu style of BOA audio and how we do things here on the program. So thank you for that, old balls. Now let's get to the part where I was going to react to some stuff. He says, on to the content, indeed. Kassar certainly does his homework. It seems as if he uses his status as outsider to full advantage. I have to say that as thorough and complete as his work on Bigfoot in the new book sounds, and even considering there seems to be original research in the form of presenting, for a modern audience, the origin of the Sasquatch story, his conclusions about there being multiple species, to my mind, is not controversial. Granted, I am not a Bigfooter or a cryptozoologist, but given that there are many different footprints and different physical descriptions, and that we're talking about sightings all over the globe, it's not so hard to believe that we're dealing with different species. Personally, I've always accepted that the Yeti and Bigfoot are different. Though they represent the same enigma to an extent, there's never been any reason to definitively say, these are the same creature, at least not to my mind. There you go, that's the excerpt I'm going to address. Thank you, Old Balls, first of all, again, for your kind words and very humbling kudos about the program. I'm just left speechless by those. So we'll just move on to the next part here, and that's what he had to say regarding the non-controversial nature of some aspects of what Gian has to say. And I totally agree with you, old balls. It's really not necessarily controversial. I think what kind of left me speechless when we did the interview was that for so long, we've been hearing that the Yeti and Bigfoot are the same thing, that we've been hearing that all these creatures are 
one and the same. And it wasn't until I sat down to read Gian Cassar's book that I actually thought to myself, having read it, what you're saying, old balls, and what Gian says makes perfect sense. That these creatures all over the world have to be different species. They have to be somewhat different, if not wildly different. And if you look into the Bigfoot phenomenon, surprisingly, that is a very different point of view from a lot of other people and places. That the common sense is the controversial part. That, I think, is the stunning part of the whole book. And I hope that responds to your post-old balls. And we got one more final email here for BOA Audio listener feedback. Short and sweet. It comes from Kevin. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Just a quick email to say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And a big thanks for all your efforts in producing really entertaining and thought-provoking shows. All free as well. It's all very much appreciated. Kevin. Thank you, Kevin, for writing in. Let me throw that right back at you. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I want to extend that, obviously, to all the great BOA Audio listeners as well. No need to thank me, Kevin. This is my passion. This is what I love to do, and that is produce these programs for all you folks out there. If not for you guys, there would be no BOA Audio. And if not for the folks who help us with their donations, it would not be all free as well. So we got to thank them here on the holiday special. Folks, you did your part, and we really appreciate it as well. I want to end listener feedback on that celebratory Yuletide note. So once again, thanks for writing in. Kevin, thank you for your feedback, old balls. Thank you for your strange email, P314285. And thank you for your take on the Bix Weir interview, Jeff in NYC. Happy holidays to all you guys, and thanks for participating in another installment of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. We're already running really long here on the episode, so let's just quickly hit on the means to get in touch with me if you want to be a part of future editions of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. If you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It's BOA's paranormal playground, theusofe.com. Check it out. And, of course, I'm on all the social networking sites, Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter. Befriend me, follow me, poke me, it's all good. No matter how you get in touch with me, I read all emails and messages, so do not fret, my friends. If you haven't heard back from me, it's been an insane month so far, but I've got about three days here of wiggle room at the end of December to respond to emails and clean out the inbox. So if you haven't heard from me yet, don't worry, my email is on the way. And if you want to share your feedback on the holiday special or you just want to give us some suggestions for the program, for future episodes or topics, shoot me a line and your correspondence may be used on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next, let's wish a happy holidays and extend thank you once again to the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. They are more than just a staff. They are my friends, and they are really my support structure here at Been All of America, 
and I want to wish them all a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. You guys really are the unsung heroes of BOA, keeping us afloat when we take our hiatuses and providing some really thought-provoking stuff for the BOA readers. We say it all the time, folks, but it is true. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Been All of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Chances are, if you've stuck with us this long into the episode, you know what comes next, and that is the call for donations. A lot of folks have stepped up in the last year, and I want to thank all them once again. As I noted a few moments ago, you guys are the people who have kept BOA free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Thank you once again for your donations to BOA. It is hugely appreciated. If you're still on the fence, if you're still procrastinating, maybe you got a little bit of scratch left over here as the holidays wind down and you want to help us out, there's two ways to make a donation. You can go to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe and secure. But maybe you don't trust the Internet and you want to keep your info off the World Wide Web. Well, there's a way to donate beyond that. You just mail your donations to Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866. As we've been saying at the end of the program for the last couple of weeks, if you do mail a donation, first of all, include your email address or some means of contact so I can thank you for helping us out. And if you're going to mail us a check, please make the checks payable to Tim Benall and not Benall of America because my bank will not cash Been All of America checks, and then I have to get in touch with you, and then you have to send me a new donation, and everybody just gets tied up in a whole bunch of rigmarole. So let's save us both the stress and make your donations payable to Tim Benall. Thanks in advance. I know it's the holiday season, and I know a lot of people are stretched thin, so if you can't make a donation, I totally understand. I don't want people to feel guilty or feel bad that they can't make a donation. Help us out when you can. If you can't right now, it's totally understood. And if you're not sure about where this money goes, let me assure you that all donations go towards Been All of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. As we've alluded to here, we're talking to the hardcore BOA Audio listeners right now. So let me give you a little bonus Christmas treat, in a sense, because I'm going to preview not just next week's program, but also the one in two weeks. First of all, next week on the program, we close out 2010 with yet another first-time-ever interview on the program. We're going to be joined by creator of the excellent and wildly popular news site, Beachcombing's Bizarre History Blog. He is the mysterious... Dr. Beachcombing. Now, before you roll your eyes and turn your nose up at us having Dr. Beachcombing on the program, let me assure you that he is a stunningly erudite and well-researched investigator of bizarre history. I kind of expected somebody a little bit jokey, and then when I got on the phone with him, I was like, wow, this guy is intense and very entertaining. He was kind enough to not only give us his first ever interview, but sit down for a very lengthy conversation. This may even go over two hours. I haven't sat down myself to edit it, but I know that we talked for quite some time. In the interview, we're going to cover burned libraries and mysterious lost texts. 
widely believed historical myths, forgotten kingdoms and lost realms, hinge moments in history, wish-I'd-been-there moments in history, and stories that reflect something or someone being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Since I haven't actually edited the interview yet, I can't really give you a point-by-point -point reading of what stories we're going to cover, but there are tons of them in there. And beyond that, we're also going to try and explore who Dr. Beachcombing is, get him to open up a little bit about why he's so mysterious, and why he chose the name Dr. Beachcombing. So for folks who are frequent visitors of Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog, and you should be if you haven't checked this site out yet, you're going to fall in love with it right away. You're going to learn a little bit more about who Dr. Beachcombing is while still wondering after it's all said and done just who is the mysterious Dr. Beach. Altogether, it is a conversation rich with a plethora of fascinating and strange tales that will entertain, amuse, and boggle the mind. It's Dr. Beachcombing from Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog with his first ever interview on BOA Audio next week. Now you may be sitting here wondering, hey, wait a minute, next week is the last episode of 2010. What about the annual year-in-review episode? Well, don't you worry, my friends. We're going to be taping the year-in-review episode next Tuesday night, December 28th, and we'll be rolling it out the first week in January of 2011. I wanted to make sure I had enough wiggle room there to get the episode out to you, because taping it on the 28th, the night of the 28th, really leaves me precious little room to get the episode edited and released for all the BOA Audio listeners. Plus, I want to get Dr. Beachcombing's big interview out before the end of the year. So there's little I can tell you about the annual year-in-review episode, except that the guest will be, as usual, the original UFO mystics, Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern. And in addition to that, we're going to take a little bit of a turn down a different path this year, because... I kind of felt worn out last year when we taped the year in review. We went point by point, and it seemed like we were just doing the same stories that we did in the 2008 year review. And I don't want to go through all that again here for 2010. So we're going to try and do more of a state of ufology as 2010 closes, and a look at maybe some of the bigger stories, possibly more some of the bigger trends of the year, and just sort of get an idea of where the hell we're at here. So... Next week, Dr. Beachcombing of Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog, talking about strange tales in the world of history. And then Greg Bishop, Nick Redfern, first week in January here on BOA Audio Season 6, talking about the year in ufology as well as the state of ufology as we kick off 2011. You're definitely going to want to tune in for that one. And on that note, I'm off to hang the stockings by the chimney with care. Thank you once again to Stanton Friedman for coming on the show for the 6th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Happy Holidays to him. I hope he has an awesome 2011, and I'm already looking forward to talking to him next year around this time. Thanks to all the folks who contributed for BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, thank you, thank you, Thank you to all the great folks out there listening right now. You are the fuel that drives the machine. The BOA Audio listeners are more than just an audience to me. They are family, and I mean that. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I mean it, folks. You guys warm my heart. You pick me up in down times. You cheer me on when things are going great. 
and, you know, if not for you guys, I don't know where I'd be. So I want to thank you all for your support and wish you all a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.